950 LE 2.0 radio. Um, you know, I could actually have talked forever about those two artists in LA um, because they very much ignited me in my imagination. And I'm now here for the big interview with a gentleman who also ignites my imagination. I'm welcoming uh, to the LE 2.0 radio show um, Tom Nelson, attorney from Minneapolis. Tom, welcome to LE 2.0 radio. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for being on the show. So, Tom, just so our uh, audience members understand a little bit about you, you are a graduate of Yale University, the University of Connecticut Law School. Um, you are and St. Olaf College. And St. Olaf Yale College. Yale University was a graduate degree. So okay, right. great. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then, uh, as well, uh, you are a partner at Stinson Leonard Street, mm -hmm. one of the yes. major law firms in downtown Minneapolis. And you and I know each other because, um, well, first of all, we're both lawyers. That's right. But we also know each other because we're both extremely dedicated to trying to make the world a better place. As much as possible. And you and I first met, I think, in connection with the Hennepin County Bar Association diversity and inclusion work. We did. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things is that um, you and I... Um, both members of the Hennepin County Bar Association and the Bar Association, the way it works is that they have a number of different committees. One of those is the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And uh, yes, I vividly remember meeting you for the first time and understanding um, immediately that you were somebody who really saw the world in a much broader way. No, so, it's nice of you to say. Well, and that's why I'm having you on the show because this show is about idealists and about idealism. And... Um, and I think maybe what I'd like to start is is um, give us a little bit about, you know, what what made what has made you where you are. I mean, part of your story is that you were teaching school in New Haven. Yes, that's right. During the nineteen mm sixties, -hmm. mm -hmm. and and um, talk to us a little bit about how that that shaped you. You grew up in Minnesota. Right? I did. Uh, okay. So I'll, there's a little bit of chronology and then there's a little bit of formation as well. So okay. So on the chronology side, I grew up in Minnesota, graduated from Bloomington High School in 1965. So that goes way back and then went to St. Olaf College and found my way to New Haven and Yale. And while I was in New Haven and Yale, where I lived for about 15 years, I ended up uh, working as a school teacher uh, in the New Haven public school system at high school in the community, which is still an active school. It was a, an, an alternative public uh, high school, uh, two units of 150 students each, and, and it was a great experiment and continues to be a great experiment. And that was in what used to be called the inner city of New Haven. So. Okay. A very diverse uh, school, great teachers, great faculty, great students. It was a, a wonderful learning experience for me. So, um, and then you ended up going to law school because somebody suggested that they thought yeah. you should be a lawyer. Uh, I, I had never thought of it, really, but one of my fellow teachers, uh, her husband was a, a lawyer and a law professor, and he suggested one day I should think about going to law school, and sure enough, I did. And, and and then lucky development. Yep. And then you came back to Minnesota, back to Minneapolis, yes. right? Yeah, you've read well. Yeah, nineteen eighty three. My I came back, Susan Richard Nelson, now Judge Nelson, and I came back in nineteen eighty three and I practiced I have practiced at Popham Hake for a while and then at Leonard Street and now Stinson Leonard Street. Well, in in one of the one of the things that grabbed me about you when I first got to meet you was that you were not afraid to dream to dream big. And um, I, 
I remember, and I can actually trace a couple of key uh, friendships uh, to this event. Hmm, um, you had had an event at uh, your law firm about a thing called the wave. Yes, still okay. working on it. Yeah. All right, well, <laughs> right, talk a little bit about the wave, and then I'll I'll share my uh, my experience about that. Oh, that's nice. Well, and, and actually, I stay still working on it because there's still work to do. the 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 wave or the waves was an idea that a handful of us had that would create for Minnesota a, a website page or a site to which everybody could go to learn all sorts of things about different organizations and people active in and committed to diversity and inclusion. And that would start with, with pre-school education and go to education, go to high school education, pipeline-related concepts, and finally find its way to um, colleges and law schools and then the practice of law. Um, and that the reason it was called the wave was because there were all these different waves that we tried to portray in a way that would make it so that the resources of those respective waves were clear and then reachable. And then we, we had that for a while, and now actually I'm, I'm more and more involved in the Minnesota State Bar Association uh, as well as the Hennepin County Bar Association. So I think, I think we'll be bringing that back to life yet again to try to see if we can make some headway on a clearinghouse sort of idea of information and resources. Well, and it's so absolutely true. I mean, one of the things that is always I've had a um, complaint or a beef about is that there is no centralized czar of any kind in the state of Minnesota as it relates to diversity and inclusion. Well, the flip of that is, you know, um, uh, uh, James Burroughs was the governor's uh, diversity and inclusion leader for a good while. And, and the, the, one of the positive pieces or one of the good pieces of news is that there are many, many people who are wonderfully dedicated to diversity and inclusion. Um, and I think, I think the more and more opportunities we have to sort of bring them into focus and bring them into prominence, the, the more progress we'll continue to make. Oh, I agree with that 100%. But part of the problem is it's very daunting. There are so many different organizations and people doing such different things. That's why I think your wave idea is so incredibly important because it's one it's a one-stop shop, you know, you can go there, find out what you want for all these different arenas. Well, with any luck, we'll see how it plays out. In the meantime, uh, there are the affinity bars, which are the different bar associations in the state of Minnesota, are just wonderfully active and wonderfully important. Um, Twin Cities Diversity and Practice is a real good consortium of great people and great initiatives. Um, so I, I, think there's, I think there's a lot of really good things. The, the Minnesota State Bar Association has a Diversity and Inclusion Leadership Council, which is also very... Yep. Broadly representative and very strong initiative-wise. And you're on that, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Yes. I'm in okay. my second term right now. <clears throat> well, and so the reason I brought, the other reason is the wave was significant for me because you actually had an unveiling event to, to bring yes, out the concept I, I remember, yeah. back in 2010. And uh, on that occasion, there was, you know, there was an unveiling, then there was a, kind of a cocktail party, social hour around it. And I actually um, went to that event because I was brand new to the Twin Cities. And as a result of that, this is all an aside, but as a result of that, I actually met two people that have become very important in my life, oh, all wonderful. because yeah. of, of your WAVE events. Yeah. So yeah. I just wanted that's you to know news. that. That's okay. part of uh, building bridges and opening gateways. It is, very much so, mm -hmm. right. very much so. And so, all right, well, listen, when we come back from our break, um, I'm, I want to talk more about 
your philosophy and some of the other work that you've been doing as an idealist. And I know that you don't necessarily want to wear that moniker, but I'm giving it to you <laughs> since you're on okay. my radio show. And um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the challenges that, that are out there that you're finding, that I'm finding, all of that stuff. Uh, listeners, we've been speaking with attorney Tom Nelson from the Stinson Leonard Firm about uh, his uh, work, his the, what he's doing in the world as an idealist. If you like what you hear, visit my website at lakrug.com. Email me, as I always say, I love hearing from listeners at LAJ krug at gmail.com when we come from, back from our break I'll speak further uh, with uh, Tom Nelson thanks so very much we'll be back in a second hey humans this is me Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 radio Tada! I'm putting on another gray area thinking human inclusivity training and I want you to come it will be at Open Book on Washington Avenue in Minneapolis on Saturday, March 16th from noon to 2 p.m. You can learn more or buy tickets by Googling Eventbrite Gray Area Thinking or by going to the Human is Human page on my website at elliecrude.com. Again, this is on Saturday, March 16th. See you there. We are given the gift of intuition on how to care for ourselves and our families. But too often we forsake that knowledge for the voice of authority. Green Tea Conversations is a radio show for people like you who are on a journey to take responsibility for their health and who want to play a more active role in their family's well-being. I'm your host, Candy Brothel, publisher of the Twin Cities edition of Natural Awakenings magazine, and I'm excited to bring Green Tea Conversations into your home. Join me every Sunday at 10 a.m. as I interview local experts straight from the pages of Natural Awakenings who will share progressive ideas in the latest natural approaches in nutrition, fitness, creative expression, personal growth, and sustainable living in a fun and informative way. Podcasts of the show are available anytime at naturaltwincities.com, am950radio.com, on iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. So grab a cup of tea and join the conversations on Sundays at 10 a.m. as we awaken to natural health. Minnesota's appliance specialists at Warner Stellion offer more ways to save, including fast free delivery, basic installation from specialists you can trust, free haul-away, and long-term no-interest financing to qualified buyers. Enjoy guaranteed savings through February 25th on top-selling appliances from around the world. Join over 300,000 Minnesota homeowners. Choose Warner Stallion to be your appliance specialist. Hi, Matt McNeil for Rudy Luther Toyota. With the road trips we took in December, we're glad we took them in our Toyota Sienna. Whether they're family, friends, or get-togethers, the Sienna was always the most comfortable way to drive. Plenty of room for all the stuff we needed to take with us, the safety and reliability you get with a Sienna, the extras which make road trips easy, and the room to stretch on out. Rudy Luther Toyota Siennas are the most fun, safe, and reliable vehicles we've ever driven. Test drive one yourself at Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Native Ritz Radio is proud to announce we've added an extra hour. Yeah, Chuske, one hour goes by too fast. That's right, Uncle Curtis. I'll have extra time to share important information about our sacred animals. And report national and native news from all over the country and Canada. This new hour is sponsored by Robbins Kaplan, LLP, rewriting the odds for their clients for over 80 years. We are awake. And 
Ellie 2 Pardo Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. I like to say that every once in a while. We've been speaking with um, attorney Tom Nelson uh, from the Stinson Leonard firm in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, Tom and I have a, uh, Tom is a friend of mine. We make sure that's clear. And, and um, we've been talking um, about our, our common interest in diversity and inclusion. And Tom, I wanted to pick this back up because among other things, I mean, you are a leader of the bar. I mean, you have, you have really um, stepped up in a number of ways. I mean, and, and you're a trial lawyer like I was a trial lawyer. I mean, on top of, of juggling trial work, I mean, you're doing all kinds of time commitments as it relates to leadership. And thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoy it. It's very satisfying. But among other things, you, you were the president of the Hennepin County Bar Association from 2014 to 2015. And during that time, I mean, you had a theme about bridges, about bridging the differences and the gaps that we have in the world with each other. And part of that involved you advocating for a greater awareness about people with disabilities and a greater acceptance of them. Right? Yes, that's and, true. And, and I, I do. I remember the very first time I ever met you. It was in a committee meeting for the Hennepin County Bar Association. And, and during that meeting, you said something about people with disabilities, about how we needed to be aware, we needed to be more protective and more um, egalitarian. Inclusive would be the right word, Ellie. Mm -hmm. um, and what struck me was you're really, you were the very first person I'd ever encountered who wanted to stake um, some capital on trying to make the world better for people with disabilities. Can you talk to us about that? How did, how did this get on your radar as you, you're not a, at least you appear to be an able-bodied person from the exterior, so. Well, it's always hard to figure out how something gets on one's mind or radar. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that my mom and dad played a big role in my uh, uh, commitment to uh, moments and issues and uh, like this. Um, I think that, that if I were to think it through, the experience of working with Judge Donovan Frank and with Colleen Wick of the governor's office on disability-related issues and opportunities uh, was really a formative uh, series of opportunities. Um, and then the people that I met, uh, people with disabilities along the way, became inspirational. Um, so, for example, uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful spokesperson and person named Karen Love who comes to all sorts of uh, educational programs and speaks um, on being uh, a person with disabilities. Um, Judge Frank is wonderfully committed to people with disabilities and Colleen Wick is basically in charge of the governor's office on, on people with disabilities. Uh, as a result, actually just in terms of, a, of an interesting or a somewhat funny story, I ended up getting involved in all sorts of committees and <clears throat> excuse me, task forces and I kept saying, you know, I didn't know that. And it was true, I didn't know that much about um, the world of people with disabilities and the law that relates to that. So what we ended up doing and agreeing was that I would write a column and give speeches on a list of things that I didn't know and had learned about uh, as a result of my work with Colleen Wick and Judge Frank and, and people with disabilities. And it, was, it became a, a good device or a good tool because it we created a number of programs that made it so that 
I would start out the program by saying I want to give you a list of things that I didn't know about because most people in the audience similarly wouldn't have known about all of those things. And then we would go into a more substantive program where we would explain some of the unique not only roles and contributions, but opportunities and obstacles that people with disabilities have. And it's a, it's a very important and loving and a way of uh, having a more inclusive environment. Judge Frank, for example, has been instrumental in making it so that the, the, the people who clean and work in the federal courthouse in St. Paul are, are very often people with disabilities. So when you're in federal court in St. Paul and when you see someone helping keep the building uh, sparkling clean, then uh, expressing gratitude is a, yep. is a good and appropriate thing to do and a well-appreciated thing to do. Well, and so part of what I'm hearing you say is really about curiosity about other humans and, and, <coughs> and having a respectful curiosity to understand that People have various challenges, and what's it like to be that person? I think probably uh, curiosity, but also empathy. Uh, you know, and, with, and I'm sure that that's something that comes directly from my mom and dad. Um, and then a sense of um, uh, obligation to make things better. If there are opportunities to make things better, then one ought to um, uh, in, you know, take those opportunities on. So it's, it's a it's a combination of a lot of adjectives and a lot of motivations. I'm sure. Mm, bless you. Uh, well, and so, thank you. Um, and and um, but you know it, the 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 concept of people with disabilities. I mean, this is still as a society still relatively new about how we're focusing on them. The you know the Americans with Disabilities Act is mm -hmm. in, in terms of laws is still very relatively new. Hubert Humphrey was instrumental <clears throat> in the in the creation of of. Uh, law-related protections for uh, people with disabilities. Talk about that. Um, uh, in, in, in the early civil rights-related discussions, uh, he saw an opportunity to slip in a phrase that had to do with disability. And that became at least one of the early bases for law-related protections. I think that the, the most, apart from the law, I mean, the law is important, but I think that the, the most important or a more, an additionally important thing with in in this regard is to help bring anybody and everybody out of the shadows and 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 to have them participate in a a full and fulfilling life and and that's the law can help on that but also human beings and just day-to-day -day interactions can help on that as well well in one of my trainings uh, around human inclusivity um, there's an opportunity for people to self-identify relative to um, uh, how they group and label themselves and I have a number of people who self-identify um, with hidden disabilities, with emotional challenges that they have that no one knows about. And sometimes some of these folks uh, speak up about them, they talk about them, and it never ceases to amaze me that when we, that the, the challenges that people have, we can never ever tell simply by looking at them. It's really true. Yeah. You know, but when you do learn about them, it's it's inspiring. It, it, it's, uh, it can be amazing and it can be inspiring and it can be surprising as well. Well, Tom, we have about a minute and a half mm -hmm. and so I'd love your thoughts on how, how are we going to get there for a more just and inclusive society? What do you think? Well, two things come to my mind. One is just going back to the 60s, you keep on keeping on. You know, I mean, the answer is that uh, if 
if we stop or if we slow down, we, we slip backwards. So that vigilance and diligence are really important. It, it's, it's not as if if we stop or slow down that things just stay the same or stay static. They, they deteriorate. They slip back. So we have to keep on keeping on. And then the other thing is I think that it's important to develop structural changes, not just sort of good ideas and not just sort of wishful ideas, but, but structural operational ideas and opportunities uh, to keep the discussion going forwards. Well, I just, um, I want you to know that um, I think the work that you have done in the bar, okay, and in the community has been very important, Tom. No, thank you very much. It's it really, a great, it, the, the bar associations and the legal profession are, are wonderful <clears throat> organizations and people, so there's a lot of opportunity, as well as obligation, but a lot of opportunity to to move forward and make make things better. And I know that a lot of civilians, people who are non-lawyers, don't understand that about our our profession, um, that we do do a lot of good. But you, I just want you to know that I really look up to you and I really admire how you have led and that you've been willing to push the envelope. Well, it's more than reciprocal, and thank you for the ripples of hope that you uh, are engaged in as well. Well, thank you. So um, we've been speaking with Tom Nelson from the Stinson Leonard Firm. Tom, thanks for being on LE 2.0 Radio. I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed our talk. You're more than welcome. Keep up the good work. All right, everyone. Uh, that was Tom Nelson, um, uh, idealist, uh, leader, uh, particularly leader of the bars, uh, the attorney bars here in, in um, Minnesota. When we come back from our break, I'll do my C block where I'll talk a little bit about my work and stuff I'm finding in the world. Thanks. On February 19th from 6 to 8 p.m., come sit around the farm table at Seward Co-op Creamery Cafe and learn more about the Cultural Wellness Center, Seward Co-op's February seed recipient. The Cultural Wellness Center is working on a new project that will create a blend of culinary heritage, self-love, and business incubation for African-American food entrepreneurs. Their new cafe space will be a cooperative and supportive environment focused on reconnecting, rediscovering, and reinventing the culinary traditions of our past. Enjoy a meal designed by Creamery Cafe staff and inspired by this work. Ingredients sourced from community foods producers. Tickets for the February 19th Farm Table three-course dinner are $40, and there is a non-alcoholic beverage pairing for an additional $7. Beer, wine, and other beverages will be available for purchase. Tickets are limited, so grab your seat at the Seward Co-op Creamery's Farm Table right away. Visit seward.coop and click on Events to purchase your tickets now. Are you concerned about health care reform, deportation, gun violence, the Line 3 pipeline? Learn how to make your voice heard. Register now for the Min by Min Beyond the Vote Conference on Sunday, February 24th at Harding High School in St. Paul. Minnesota artist and Northland Poster Collective co-founder Ricardo Levins Morales will kick off the day as the keynote speaker. The day-long conference features a variety of workshops and activities to help you better understand the issues, boost your activism skills, and connect with activist and advocacy communities across the state. Be sure to visit the exhibitor tables and try out the new hosted interactive walk-up stations. Register today at mnxmn.org. Early bird rates are available through Valentine's Day. Student discount scholarships and child supervision are also available. Or sign up as a volunteer and attend sessions for free. For more details or to register, visit mnxmn.org. That's Min by Min Beyond the Vote Sunday, February 24th at Harding High School in St. Paul. Min by Min, empowering civic engagement in Minnesota.
I am Athena Janakis Karras, and my family invites you to join us at It's Greek to Me on the corner of Lake and Lindale. Since purchasing this iconic restaurant two years ago, our passion has been building upon the traditional by infusing the menu and space with modern interpretations of classic Greek cuisine, sourcing fresh, authentic ingredients and recipes cultivated from our Greek heritage. Your meal will be quintessentially Greek. Find It's Greek to Me at 626 West Lake Street in Minneapolis or at It's Greek to Me MN. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. With your AM 950 weather, this is Eric Nelson. Monday will be mostly cloudy with a high near 18 and a low around negative 2. Tuesday, partly sunny with a high near 13. AM 950 is brought to you by Eat Local Minnesota. Click away from the usual and find a list of one-of-a-kind local restaurants at eatlocalminnesota.com. From elegant to casual, exotic to comfort food, they've got everything and more. Find the full list of incredible nearby restaurants at eatlocalminnesota.com. humans of minneapolis minnesota the world it is me ellie krug on ellie 2.0 radio how are you all happy february happy president's day on february um i know i'm i'm mispronouncing it but there you go um and uh, for our government our federal government workers today is a day off for you um, because I'm taping this show in advance, I have no idea whether you'll get additional days off in addition to this Monday um, because of yet another government shutdown. And if you do, my heart goes out to you. It really does. So uh, remember that this show, uh, LE 2.0 Radio, is about idealism and idealists. Um, and uh, remember also it's February, so it's Black History Month. Last week I did a pretty dedicated show to what it meant to be black in America. And uh, I'm going to come back to it in, an, in a couple of other ways here today um, because, um, frankly, um, it's important. Um, and uh, so there you go. You'll also, um, in a little bit, hear an interview I, I've uh, done of a, of a wonderful Minneapolis lawyer by the name of uh, Tom Nelson, uh, who is quite an idealist himself. But first, I want to talk about artists as idealists. I was in uh, Los Angeles last week uh, to speak at a conference of legal professionals. Uh, and because of the way the weather is, I ended up having to fly in a day early to avoid a snowstorm. And of course, I came back from Los Angeles in a snowstorm. It, oh, I don't even get me started on this winter. <clears throat> However... <clears throat> I was in Los Angeles, and um, I had intentionally, even before traveling out there, had built in a couple of extra days into the trip. So I gave a talk on a Friday afternoon. I was all done with that talk by 4 o'clock um, on Friday, so that, 
that gave me the rest of Friday and Saturday. And uh, the day before, since I came in early, I had time on Thursday to do some of the things that I love to do. Now, I've, I've been to Los Angeles only one time before that, and that was kind of an in-and-out type of event. I'd never spent a, a time in Los Angeles, so I was like, I'm going to Los Angeles in February. Do I need to say anything more? And I'm going to spend some time there. By the way, do you remember what green looked like? Do you remember green, that color? Because I saw a lot of it when I was in Los Angeles, just saying. And I also saw 60 degree, or felt 60 degree temperatures. At any rate, when I go to a new city, what I, one of the things I like to do, other than trying to get on a bicycle, one of the things I like to do is to go to art museums. I do. And L.A. has some phenomenal art museums. So, um... Uh, one of those museums happens to be the um, Getty Museum. And I've got to tell you, if you've not been to the Getty Museum, if you go to L.A., you've got to go to the Getty Museum. First of all, you have to, you have to take a tram up a, up a hill, um, you know, a small mountain, it's a hill, um, to get to the museum complex. When you get there, you are on a hilltop, and off to your left, you can see downtown Los Angeles, and then off to your right... It is a vista, panoramic, beautiful view of the Pacific Ocean. It is stunningly breathtaking, uh, the view from the Getty Museum. And the Getty Museum itself is a collection of a number of different buildings, very modern, very um, crisp and sharp architecture uh, buildings with a number of different galleries. <laughs> And as it turns out, um, they were having, they were just finishing. I got very lucky on my trip to Los Angeles because both of the exhibits I'm going to tell you about were exhibits that were ending the following week. But uh, at the Getty, there was an exhibit of photographs by a uh, photographer by the name of Sally Mann, M-A-N-N. Um, Sally Mann is a fairly famous photographer. Um, some have called her the most... Um, important photographer of our modern time. Uh, I, I, you know, again, very much ignorance on my part. I had not heard of Sally Mann before that. And she had a, um, there was an exhibit at, uh, a large exhibit at the Getty Museum titled A Thousand Crossings, which is in part about the Deep South, um, and it juxtaposes the, the beauty of the landscape with the history of that land History of Cruelty Towards Humans. Uh, um, ma um, Sally Mann often uses a very large box camera, so I want you to be thinking the kind of camera from the 1800s. And she processes her films using a process known as wet, wet plate collidion, using 8 by 8 8-inch by 10-inch glass negatives. There's actually a film at this exhibit that she demonstrates how she makes her pictures. The pictures are haunting um, because they're not always crisp and clean. Sometimes there's a little blurriness to them. Sometimes there's fuzziness. Sometimes dots of, of dust get on the negative, and they in and of themselves, give the, give the photographs some granular texture. It, it, they are stunningly beautiful photographs, but they are also haunting. Uh, some of those photographs that were part of this exhibit 
uh, where historic places where cruelty was paramount. Um, the um, Antonym uh, Civil War battlefield in Virginia, where on a single day, on a single day, I believe 60,000 Americans lost their lives. During the Civil War, it was the bloodiest day, bloodiest battle of the Civil War. She went there and photographed the fields of this battlefield the, and the trees. And, and even in this, in this area, there are still there are trees that were broken by the wind, but they would replicate what it would have been like had been broken by cannonballs. And then she went to Mississippi and took photographs of a bridge. This happened to be a bridge um, over a river in which um, white men dumped the body of Emmett Till in 1955. Some of you may remember um, Emmett Till was a teenager uh, killed in Mississippi. He had been he he lived in uh, Chicago, but was visiting his grandmother in Mississippi, and he allegedly disrespected a white woman, and for that for that slight penalty was death in 1955. And so she, so Sally Mann went to the bridge where Emmett Till's body was dumped and um, took a photograph of that, took a photograph of the river. Um, you know, what I did not know about Sally Mann, but clearly what her art reflected was her desire for us to reflect on how cruelty towards humans shapes us. It was a I just, I urge you to study up on Sally Mann. <clears throat> then, um, the, a couple days later, I was at the um, uh, Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art, known as MOCA, okay? Uh, Museum of Contemporary Art. And I came across an exhibit by um, an artist by the name of Cameron Rowland. Roland is a conceptual artist. That, and so, con, uh, again, I'm learning. Conceptual art is, uh, in many respects, uh, using everyday items to make us think about how humans interact with each other or with our environment. The exhibit at MOCA that Cameron Roland uh, did was titled D37. And the exhibit is uh, intended to remind us about the realities of modern-day modern day slavery. Now, I need, to, I need to lay out what this exhibit was like because you go into a room, um, and it's a fairly large room, about uh, the size of, I would say, two, maybe three good-sized living rooms. And <clears throat> you go in, the walls are all white. On one wall to the left are a number of bicycles. I, I would guess maybe about a dozen bicycles. Across from it, on another wall, are another dozen bicycles. They're all wired together like um, with a cable and they each have, each of those collections of bicycles have a sheet of paper um, with, you know, with like the, the, the date and then uh, the word lot uh, on them. And it was very clear that as you look at them, these were bicycles that were like part of an auction. But in this room, there were other things. There was a grandfather clock. There was a baby stroller. There were two uh, backpack leaf blowers. Um, and then on the wall, when you got to the far part of the, wall, of the exhibit, when, from where the entrance was, you got to the far wall. Framed on the wall were three tax collection receipts from counties in southern states from the years 
One was from the year 1848, one was from the year 1852, and the third was from the year 1860. <clears throat> and these receipts had a number of different items on the... So it was where you go and pay your taxes, you know, the tax collector checks what you're paying your tax on and what the amount was. And each of these receipts had items on them for, like, taxation of horses or carriages or cattle. But on each of these receipts was one other item, one other line, and that was the word slaves. You see that, and it hits you in the face. And it reminds you, maybe it teaches you, um, that black humans in the South and before the Civil War and other places of our country were simply treated as mere property. That black people were mere property. Now, Cameron Rowland, um, uh, let me just tell you, uh, he wants to make his point. So he actually put together a multi-page annotated document describing um, not only why he has those various items in the exhibit, but also giving history about how slaves were constructed as property in the United States um, and how modern-day slavery continues. So part of what he writes is that by 1860, slaves constituted 20% of all American wealth. I'm going to say that to you again. In 1860, black people considered property constituted one-fifth of the wealth of the United States. The bicycles, the strollers, the leaf blowers that were all part of uh, this exhibit also were items that had been seized by the police um, in the conjunction with a crime or, or fruits of crimes or whatever and um, had been auctioned off. So Roland actually went to these auctions and bought these items. Um, and this auctioning process by police departments is, known, is part of what's known as civil asset forfeiture, where police seize the property or cash of alleged criminals. Sometimes you don't even need to be convicted for this to happen. They just need to think you're a criminal. And trying to get back your property after that is hell. Sorry, I, I just yelled. I just swore on the radio. And then what happens is the police seize these a assets and then they sell them. And then the under American law, the police get to keep up to 80% of the proceeds. It's a process. The civil asset forfeiture is a process of funding law enforcement uh, departments across America. Now, you're, now, you know from me speaking, in other words, I have great respect for our law enforcement professionals. But the idea, the idea that they can go and seize property, even if you're just accused, and then sell it and make money off of it, I'm sorry that that is repulsive. And of course, given the disparity of arrest and incarceration of people of color in America, this civil asset forfeiture process falls most heavily upon communities of color. I could go on about both Sally Mann and Cameron Rowland about how they made me think, but that's all the time I have left for this segment. Let me just summarize by saying that artists are often idealists. They make us work for it, though. They do. They make us work for it and coming to our understanding. But in the process of working for it, I think that we better understand 
what they're talking about as it relates to trying to make the world a better place. I think that we hold it longer since we had to work for it. All I can say about both of those exhibits that I saw is wow and thank you. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, Hopeless Idealist on AM 950. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. When we come back, talk to Tom Nelson. Thank you. Again, and I gotta tell you, Jim, this match has me really concerned. Here we have a powerful heavyweight, a train, weighing in at 6,000 tons, and this hasty lightweight challenger, a car, at just one and a half tons? This does not bode well for the car, or the people in it. It's no contest. Every day, people are injured or killed trying to beat a train at rail crossings. See tracks, think train. Do yourself a favor and check out the amazing cuisine of EatLocalMinnesota.com. More than just a website, EatLocalMinnesota.com provides you with the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities. The award-winning Hazel's Northeast combines the feel of a small-town diner with the vibrant nature of its Northeast Minneapolis neighborhood. Whether it's breakfast, lunch, weekend brunch, or dinner, their classically inspired and creatively prepared American comfort food is always made from scratch. Hazel's Northeast at 29th and Johnson in Northeast Minneapolis. EatLocalMinnesota.com the dedicated staff at Nightingale Restaurant take pride in presenting a thoughtful and delicious approach to food and drink, whether you're visiting for dinner, happy hour, or brunch. Their focus on made-from-scratch meals using sustainable and local ingredients is likely to make Nightingale your go-to spot for inspired food and drinks. Nightingale, Lindell and 26th in Minneapolis. Hey humans, this is me, Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio. Ta-da! I'm putting on another Gray Area Thinking Human Inclusivity training, and I want you to come. It will be at Open Book on Washington Avenue in Minneapolis on Saturday, March 16th from noon to 2 p.m. You can learn more or buy tickets by Googling Eventbrite Gray Area Thinking or by going to the Human is Human page on my website at elliekrug.com. Again, this is on Saturday, March 16th. See you there. We are sleepwalking into a disaster. Climate change is burning down our forests, flooding our coastlines, and parking the polar vortex in our own backyard. What can we do? Please join us at Shepherd of the Hill Church of Chaska for a one-hour talk from meteorologist Paul Douglas on Tuesday, February 19th at 7 p.m. Paul's new book is called Caring for Creation, The Evangelical's Guide to Climate Change and a Healthy Environment. This talk is part of the Tuesday Dialogue series hosted at Shepherd of the Hill Church of Chaska, a progressive congregation that teaches Dr. King. It has the big red rocker out front at 145 Engler Boulevard and Highway 41. I'm your host, Pastor Dean J. Seal. Free and open to the public, co-sponsored by the Southwest Metro and Chaska Citizens Climate Lobby, Interfaith Power and Light, and AM950. Find us on Facebook or at chaskachurch.org. Again, that's Tuesday, February 19th at 7 p.m. Be there. Aloha. You know, I'll tell you, Tom Nelson, he is a very um, 
I think, a very reserved, very classy man in many, many ways. And but he's a hero of mine, you know. And there's ever since the first time I met him, um, I really admired him because uh, he's not afraid to walk the walk um, as well as talk the talk. And that's partly what idealists do. I mean, you cannot be an idealist from uh, your barco lounger in front of the TV. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. All right, well, we're now into my C block where I, you know, um, uh, where I talk about what I'm encountering in the world, things that are happening to me, things that I'm trying to do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what I want to really talk about for this segment is about a book um, that I'm not quite through yet, but I've read enough to know that this book has grabbed me, um, that it's going to be a pole star for me as I go forward. And it will resonate with me for the rest of my life. I mean, you know, I'm 62, so who knows how much time I've got, but there you go. The book, what is it? It's titled White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Um, that's the title. The author is Robin D'Angelo. She actually was here in Minneapolis a couple of weeks ago speaking. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see her. Um, what the book does is it takes a good, hard look at America and at our culture of white supremacy. Um, and similar to what uh, Sally Mann and Cameron Rowland uh, were trying to do with their art about making us think about how how we just absolutely don't know everything that affects us and causes us to deal with people in certain ways. So what is white fragility? Um, in essence, it's the inability of most white people to talk about race without reacting emotionally and feeling as if they are a bad person for simply being white. Um, and when white fragility is triggered, what happens is that white people spend all of their time, all of their emotional capital defending their character. I'm not a racist. I, I, I like all people. Um, they spend all of their emotional capital trying to convince somebody that they are a good person. And in the process of doing that, they can't even begin to have a conversation around how the social and political systems in this country are rigged to favor white people over people of color. Fragility also comes into play because white people don't have the resiliency um, needed um, relative to considering race. Um, white people... And, uh, you know, and, and many of you now, maybe you're like reaching for the dial. We don't, I don't need to hear this from you, Ellie Krug. So if you are about to reach for the dial, by all means, do not, please. Because this is for you, as well as for me. By the way, I got my issues around all of this. I don't have the market cornered, so I want you to know that. But here's the deal, okay? White people consider white to be normal. That's the way we view the world. We view the world through a lens that, you know, that white is, is the default. White is the normal for the world. And that people that are, have skin colors other than white are not normal. That they are outside the norm. And fragility comes about because when we get 
when we get challenged about white being the norm, okay, us believing that it's the norm, it just throws us, us white people for a loop. By the way, I'm a, I'm a, I am, you know, obviously a white person. I've said that now, and if you've ever seen my picture, you know that. Much of what I'm telling you right now, you, you might be willing to hear from me. But if you thought I was a black person, or if I had, the, you know, an accent that uh, spoke um, in a way that you could detect that maybe it was a black person speaking, uh, many of you would be tuning me out. Just saying. So whites, we don't have that resiliency to talk about race, but people of color do have that resiliency because, frankly, they've known it all their life that society has told them that they are not the norm. They've built up some resistance. They've built up some buffer over race where they can talk about it. They can way better than white people can. And so um, this book is in part about that. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about this because we as white people have no idea. I mean, I, uh, we have no idea about how the system is rigged. I mean, for example, I just talked a little bit ago um, in the first segment about um, uh, the Roland, the Cameron Roland exhibit about um, civil forfeiture and how it really impacts people who um, uh, are of color from marginalized communities, poorer people, people who don't make as much money. Um, it's something that most white people, middle class and upper, upper class people have no idea about. You may remember uh, Ferguson, Missouri, you know, the police involved shooting in Ferguson. And what they found out later on was that they investigated the Ferguson Police Department and what they were doing is, you know, they were pulling over a lot of people of color for minor traffic violations and using that as a piggy bank as a piggy bank, as a way to fund the department through the fines. Um, and and um, uh, that's called the Ferguson effect. And so, um, so, here, let me just throw out a phrase for you right now. You're driving or you're at home. Here, let me throw this phrase at you. Good neighborhood. When you hear that phrase, what do you think of? A lot of people, when you hear the phrase good neighborhood, they think... Uh, they think of uh, white people, you know, they think that it's a neighborhood ma populated mainly by white people with middle to upper incomes. Let me throw another phrase at you. Bad neighborhood. What comes to mind there for you? For many people, comes to mind neighborhood populated by people of color, um, by people maybe with, um, with lower income. I mean, just those phrases, just the immediate mental picture that you had when I threw those two phrases at you, if you reacted the way that I, you know, that I assume that you did, that is, that, that is about how our society has geared white people to think. It is. And so when we talk about white supremacy, it's not the people at Charlottesville. That's not what white supremacy is. White supremacy is the concept that white people internalize, that white is normal, and that of color is not. And so we do this, and, and you know, uh, can you, and, 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 and so 
this internalization makes it a whole lot easier for us, for some segments of our society, to be okay with the fact that we're separating uh, uh, children of color, even babies, newborns of color, from their parents of color at the southern border, but who could not fathom the idea of us doing that to Canadians coming from the north. Where we What? We would do that to the Canadians? What? It's all about color. It's all about the way we view people as humans. And here's the point. Unless we understand this about ourselves, there is no way that we can ever have conversations about why it's important to break down systems of oppression. You know, why it's important to get rid of civil forfeitures. You know? Why, <clears throat> why it is important to change the way that schools are. Okay, well, that's all the time I have for that. But I highly recommend the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Well, it's been another great show. Um, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I need to do a big thanks to our sponsor, Brending Electrolysis. Let Bev know that I sent you, or talked about her at least, because she does wonderful work. I need to thank um, my producer, Hunter Hawes. Hunter, you did a great job. Thank you so very much for everything that you do. And to you, my listeners, thank you for listening. Remember, I've still got coming up on March 16th, um, another gray area thinking event, um, public event at Open Book from noon to two o'clock. Please come. You can go to Eventbrite. All you have to do is Eventbrite tickets, Google gray area thinking, and it'll come up. I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Bye. Bye.